Well, if you would take your Bible, turn with me to the book of Hebrews, back to chapter 6. Hebrews 6. In the psalm we read earlier, in Psalm 19.1, David proclaims, The heavens are telling the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. These are powerful words that describe what we call general revelation. That is, general revelation refers to what God has made. God has revealed himself primarily in two ways, through what he has made in creation, and then especially through his son and his precious word. When we look at what God has made, we learn about God himself. We see his glory. We see his power. We see many of his invisible attributes put on display for us from the smallest cells of our body to the furthest reaches of outer space. Romans 1 verse 20 says it this way, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. The beauty of every sunrise is a tiny glimpse of the magnificent beauty of God himself. The power of every thunderstorm this spring is a glimpse of his infinite power. In fact, in the book of Job, it says that these storms are just the fringes of his power. Job 26, 14, behold, these are the fringes of his ways. And how faint a word we hear of him, but his mighty thunder, who can understand? And so it is that the world is left without excuse because God has given to us a a constant testimony of himself. And because of that, it's no surprise then that there are certain aspects of creation that are routinely used in the scriptures to illustrate great spiritual truths. The world around us is like a canvas that reveals God. And so the authors of scripture are often inspired to use that canvas to help us see otherwise difficult truths in a clear and simple way. Every time you walk outside, you simultaneously see a proof of the existence of God, but also proof of the presence of the curse because of sin. Every vista that we lay our eyes on is a a mixture of beauty and curse all in one. And we are drawn to God, or at least we ought to be, because of both. We're drawn to God because of who he is and the beauty of God that we see. And we're drawn to God because of that curse of sin, uh, because it helps us realize that we are in desperate need of God and of his gracious forgiveness and his son. In our text this morning, the author of Hebrews is going to do what so many other biblical authors have been inspired to do. He's going to call on a scene from nature, from what God has made, in order to illustrate the reality of the spiritual truth that we studied last week. And as we study this simple but powerful illustration, the author's meaning of verses 4 to 6 that we looked at last week will become crystal clear. Remember that this section of Hebrews is the third of five warning passages. And that the overarching theme is the superiority of Christ, and specifically here in this section, the superiority of Christ over the Old Testament priesthood. This larger section breaks down into four parts that we'll put there on the screen. We're in part number two, a personal admonition and warning. Let's read together, beginning in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 11, down through chapter 6, verse 8. Hebrews 5.11 begins, Concerning him we have much to say, and it's hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, 
You have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God. And you've come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he's an infant. But solid food is for the mature, who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. Therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about the Christ, let us press on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of instruction about washings and laying on of hands and the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. For in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away, it's impossible to renew them again to repentance, since they again crucified to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. For ground that drinks the rain which often falls on it and brings forth vegetation, useful to those for whose sake it is also tilled, receives a blessing from God. But if it yields thorns and thistles, it is worthless and close to being cursed, and it ends up being burned." Our passage this morning is made up of those last two verses, verses 7 and 8, but they are here in the larger flow of that entire passage that we just read. And so we'll put on the screen where we've been before. We won't belabor this, but we've been looking at spiritual lethargy. We've looked at the concern of spiritual progress to press on to maturity in verse 1 of chapter 6. That really is the heart of the instruction here, to press on. We've seen here this third warning Uh, beware of apostasy. This is what we looked at last week, verses 4 to 6, but really that warning encompasses the verses we'll look at today as well. The the warning to beware of apostasy begins in verse 4 and runs through verse 8. We saw the result of apostasy. We saw the apostate's description and judgment and the cause of apostasy. And what we saw there is that the apostate manifests his heart in two wicked ways. The apostate, first of all, is in agreement with Christ's crucifixion, and the apostate is in agreement with Christ's shame. What we learned is that the apostate is one who has been in the community of believers, who has likely professed faith in Christ, perhaps been baptized in the church, seems from all outward appearances to be a true Christian, and yet in the end walks away from the faith, and doesn't just walk away, but walks away rejecting Christ and even expressing hatred towards Christ, agreeing with those who crucified him and put him to public shame. Now, on the heels of that comes this illustration. As we said last week, there are many things that are difficult in that passage. In verses 4 to 6, it is one of the most difficult passages in the New Testament to interpret. But what's so helpful to us this morning is that as difficult as that passage is, this passage today is completely, entirely simple and easy to understand. And the reason that's important is because the passage today, in its simplicity, helps us understand the complexity of the passage we studied last week. All of the debates that we mentioned last week suddenly come into clear view, and the answer is clear when we simply look at verses 7 to 8. And so in verses 7 to 8, we have this overarching idea of apostasy illustrated. 
apostasy illustrated. Now, in both the Old and New Testament, agriculture is commonly used to illustrate spiritual truth. Of course, the culture of that day was much more familiar with agriculture. It was more part of their daily life. They were closer to it. But still, these, these agricultural illustrations are easy even for us to understand if, whether we have a green thumb or not. And the beauty of these illustrations is their simplicity. They're easy to understand. And so suddenly this complex passage in which we, we strain our brains and our, we cause our minds to sweat turns into a simple illustration. And what the illustration here in verses 7 to 8 presents to us are two scenarios, two possible scenarios for one specific field. He's going to use a field and the soil in that field and the, the fruit that that soil produces to help us understand the key truths that he's just explained. The response of this field to the gracious provision given to it becomes undeniable evidence of the true quality of the soil in that field. That really is the idea. I'm going to say that over and over again, but the key idea here deals with the soil itself. What is the nature of the soil in this field, and how can we tell what is really happening in the nature of that soil by what it produces? So what we're going to do is look at both of these scenarios in turn, and we're going to handle this this illustration in the same way that Jesus often does in the New Testament. We're going to look at the illustration on its own terms, and then we'll come back and look at the, the explanation of what does it mean and how does it tie into the immediate context. So scenario number one in verses seven to eight we'll call the blessed field. The blessed field. Look back with me at verse seven. For ground that drinks the rain which often falls on it and brings forth vegetation useful to those for whose sake it is also tilled, receives a blessing from God. This is scenario number one. Each of these two scenarios breaks down into three key details. Three details. Detail number one in scenario number one we'll call the gracious provision. The gracious provision. Looking at verse seven again, begins with the word for. That's important because it means these verses are tied to the previous verses. So if you want to understand what he means in verses 4 through 6, you've got to look at verses 7 to 8. He's still in the same train of thought here. These are to be taken together. Notice the second word in verse 7, for ground. The word ground here is the word for earth or soil. It's the dirt. And that ground is the subject of this entire illustration. Everything that happens is to illustrate for us something about that ground, that soil. The nature of the soil becomes evident through what it produces. Notice the provision given to this ground in verse 7. It says, for ground that drinks the rain which often falls on it. Ground that drinks the rain which often falls on it. This soil has had the benefit of provision. The rain is to to cause us to think of the fact that the soil has had all that it needs to produce a crop. It's been given this gracious provision, and we know that it's received that provision because it's described here as having having drunk the rain. It drinks the rain. And this rain was not a one-time instance. It says the rain which often falls on it. So this, this field and this illustration has everything it needs 
Every provision has been given to it through these frequent rains for it to then produce a crop. And in this case, in scenario number one, the soil responds positively to that rain. This is detail number two, the useful fruit. The useful fruit, ground that drinks the rain which often falls on it and brings forth vegetation. It brings forth vegetation. In response to this provision of rain, the soil brings forth in this first scenario vegetation. That word vegetation is a bit generic, but it becomes clear as we look at the description of this vegetation. Look back at the text. It brings forth vegetation useful to those for whose sake it is also tilled. This vegetation is described as useful, and it's useful specifically to the the owner, the worker of that field who's been working and, and tilling up that dirt in hopes of a crop. It produces then a fruitful crop. This is good fruit, essentially. The, the, the ground here, the soil, receives the rain, and it produces good fruit that's useful, that's valuable. But notice that the good fruit is not the point. The point is what the good fruit says about the soil. The soil receives the rain here, and it responds by producing the kind of fruit that it was intended to produce. It's useful fruit. The usefulness of that fruit, then, is acknowledged by God in a detail Number three, the divine affirmation. What happens to this kind of soil? Well, he says it receives a blessing from God. That kind of soil receives a blessing. This useful soil that produces good fruit receives a blessing. Now, we're going to talk about what that blessing is and what it means in a moment when we get to the explanation. Right now, we're just looking at the actual illustration itself. But on the heels of that, we quickly turn to scenario number two. And scenario number two in verse eight, we'll call the cursed field. The cursed field. Look back at verse eight. But if it yields thorns and thistles, it is worthless and close to being burned or cursed, and it ends up being burned. Now, grammatically, in the gr- grammatical structure here, the giving of rain obviously is true of both scenarios. Don't picture two separate fields next to each other. Picture one field and two different outcomes for that field. This one field receives the same amount of rain, the same nutrients are given. In scenario one, that that field produces one thing, then rewind, same rain is given, and in scenario two, that soil produces something different. And so the first detail here in the second scenario is the same as the first scenario, gracious provision. For ground that drinks the rain which often falls on it. This field too has received all the necessary provisions and nutrients needed to bring forth a good crop. And yet, where the two scenarios diverge is in the second detail. Detail number two we'll call the worthless fruit. But if it yields thorns and thistles, it is worthless. It is worthless. Astonishingly, here in this second scenario, the rain given to the field does not produce good fruit, but instead it says it produces thorns and thistles that are described then as worthless. This is worthless fruit. Notice the intentional contrast between the word useful in scenario number one and the word worthless here in scenario number two. 
The first scenario, good fruit is produced that's useful to the owner of the field because it, it's, it's a, a crop that he could then sell, that he could then use and, and, and feed his family with. But in the second scenario, the field is given every chance to succeed. It still receives the rain. We, we can assume it still receives the, the work of the farmer tilling the soil. And yet what happens here is not a fruitful crop, but thorns and thistles that are worthless to the landowner. He can't eat those. He can't sell those. And so... It is worthless. Now, it's not by accident that he uses this description of thorns and thistles and a curse. When you hear the words thorns and thistles and a curse, what other passage of Scripture comes to mind? The fall in Genesis chapter 3. I believe that's intentional. It turns our mind back to the curse brought on by sin. Genesis chapter 3, beginning in verse 17. Then to Adam, he said, God said... Because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying, you shall not eat from it, cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life, both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return." This ground in scenario number two reflects the effects of the fall brought on by sin. This soil is cursed ground because of what it produces here, thorns and thistles. It produces the kind of crop that comes with the curse of sin. And these thorns and thistles bring an indictment from the mouth of God on the soil. Remember... In verse 7, the ground itself is what we're looking at. This kind of ground receives an assessment from God in detail number 3. Here's the divine assessment of this second field, the divine condemnation. It's worthless, he says, and because it's worthless, he adds, and close to being cursed. Close to being cursed. This This language, too, is to bring our mind back to Genesis 3 and the curse and and the result of the curse. This ground is cursed ground because it yields produce that is cursed produce. And when it says that the the curse is close, the idea is is of imminency. It's close at hand. It's, It's soon going to happen that this field is going to be cursed. And what will be the end of this field that is cursed? It says, and its end Or it ends up being burned. It ends up being burned. Now, in the illustration itself, if we think of it as a farming, a true farming scene, obviously that the landowner has done all that he can. This this soil has received all that it could possibly receive, and yet it hasn't produced good fruit. And so his only option is to burn it and to start over, to try to rework that soil and to to cause it to be a nutritious kind of soil. That makes total sense when we think of it in that way. And yet this illustration is incredibly sobering and shocking because we all understand that this agricultural picture is given by this inspired author to further explain the sin of apostasy. That's why this is here. And it's at this point that we have to begin applying the illustration back to verses 4 to 6 that we studied last week. And so to do that, let's remind ourselves, let's refresh our memories, and let's read verses 4 to 6 again. Verse 4 says, For in the case 
of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away. It's impossible to renew them again to repentance since they again crucified to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. Now, as we mentioned last week, there is a heated debate that theologians often have over those verses we just read, and the debate really centers on this question. Is the person referred to in those verses a true Christian who has lost his or her salvation on one side, Or, as I taught last week, is that person someone who has professed to be a Christian but all along was actually not a true believer and has evidenced that now by walking away from the faith? Verses 7 and 8 and verse 9 that we'll look at later make it clear that it is the second of those options that's meant in verses 4 to 6. This is a person who all the while was not a genuine believer, although they may have looked to be so by every outward appearance, their heart was never truly changed. And eventually, that lack of true conversion evidences itself in some outward way where that becomes obvious. Verses 7 and 8 and 9 make that clear. Of course, if we just take verses 4 to 6 and we pull them out of their context and we study them only by themselves and we don't pay anything, any attention to the other verses or what the rest of the Bible says, you might come away thinking this is a true Christian that lost his or her salvation. But we never read the Bible that way. Not if we want to understand the Bible. If we want to use the Bible correctly and understand the scriptures, we have to look at the rest of the context. And verses 7 and 8 makes it clear that this is a person who was in the church, claimed Christ, for a time seemed to be genuine, and yet in the end rejected Christ, proving the true nature of his or her heart. So with that in mind, let's look again at the explanation of the illustration and exactly what is he saying about verses 4 to 6 and the, the apostasy here by this illustration. Let's talk first of all about the rain. Explanation number one, the rain. What is the rain in this illustration? Well, in context, the rain that falls on the field in each of these scenarios has to refer to those experiences that are listed in verses 4 to 6 that the apostate has experienced. And not just the apostate, but the whole church has experienced these things. Remember, there are five things that this person is said to have experienced. He, he or she has been enlightened That is, they have come to understand the gospel. The apostate is a person who knows the true gospel and can even tell you the true gospel, but it has never actually affected his or her heart. Secondly, this is a person that's tasted of the heavenly gift. As we said last week, that heavenly gift is likely a reference to Christ himself or Christ and the gospel The Israelites in the wilderness received the manna from heaven. Christ is the true manna that has come down to us. They tasted of the heavenly gift. Thirdly, they became partakers of the Holy Spirit, which we described as having experienced the conviction of the Spirit, and they witnessed the true work of the Spirit among his people as he transformed them further into the image of Christ. Fourthly, these people tasted the good word. They sat underneath the teaching of Scripture week in and week out. They heard the inspired words of God. And then fifthly, they tasted of the age to come. 
they saw that the manifestation of regeneration in the people as they were transformed, but also they even saw the miraculous works of the ministry of the apostles, as it says earlier in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 to 4. These people saw the work of the Spirit on display in front of them. Now, both the believers and the unbelievers in the church all saw these things. This is the rain. The rain fell on both the believers and the unbelievers. These are the gifts and privileges that come to a person who lives life in the church, who connects him or herself to the congregation of believers. And this rain provides all of the spiritual nutrients needed to encourage sanctification in a genuine Christian. And that's exactly what happens in scenario number one. In scenario number one, This person receives the rain and produces one kind of useful fruit, scenario number two, worthless fruit. So let's talk now about that useful fruit and the worthless fruit, explanation number two. First of all, what is this useful fruit? Well, the useful fruit here has to describe the true believer's response to these gracious provisions of God that sees the rain. The true believer responds to the truth of the gospel and the work of the Spirit and the preaching of the Word and by growing in the faith which brings about sanctification. Remember, this is all leading back to verse 1 where he gave us the charge to press on to maturity. What he's saying is when believers receive the rain, these nutrients, that's exactly what they do. They press on to maturity. They grow degree by degree in sanctification. Sanctification includes spiritual maturity, it includes growth in spiritual discernment, and further transformation into the character of Christ himself. And so a person is is sanctified, and as a person sanctified, that sanctification becomes evident by the spiritual fruit that's produced in his or her life. Their faith grows in strength and in perseverance. Their love for God grows. Their their desire to serve and to worship God grows as well. In addition to that, this is a person, the true believer, who begins more and more to win the battle with sin, where they're putting off and putting on. And the product of that victory begins to show itself as the fruit of the Spirit reveals itself in that person's life. You remember the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5, 22 to 25, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Now the person whose life used to be dominated by sin because of a lack of self-control, has begin, begun by God's grace to have a greater measure of self-control. The person who, as an unbeliever, was harsh and argumentative and ready to fight over time is being transformed into a person that's more and more characterized by gentleness and by kindness. The person who before Christ lived only for himself or for herself and who saw every situation only through the lens of their desires and their wants and their needs now is being transformed by Christ into a perspective of selflessness in which everything becomes about the glory of God and the good of others over ourselves. This is the true fruit of the Spirit. By the way, just as a side note, you know, many people 
and evangelicalism today are still making the mistake of the church in Corinth when it comes to identifying this, these maturing aspects, this fruit of the Spirit. And, uh, you know, as they, they see giftedness rather than Christ-likeness. They time our maturity to the gifts we have rather than the, the character that we have in Christ. And as long as they have certain gifts, they believe that that must be evidence that the Spirit is, is filling them. But Paul tells the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 13 that in their zeal for giftedness, they have neglected the vastly more important quality of a transformed character. That's the context behind those famous words in 1 Corinthians 13. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, those are gifts, but don't have love, I've become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and I know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. What is he saying? In the true Christian life, a mature Christian is not one that is focused primarily on his or her giftedness, but on his or her character. Is your character being transformed into the character of Christ? Because if you use even the greatest spiritual gifts apart from Christ-like character, it's worth nothing, is what he says. Remember again, all that's being said here is under the banner of Hebrews 6.1. Therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about the Christ, let us press on to maturity. The true believers who are part of this congregation will do exactly that. They will, by God's grace, press on to maturity. That's the useful fruit. But what about this worthless fruit? Well, the worthless fruit described in the second scenario can only mean that this second person has received all the same benefits and blessings that are described there in those verses, and yet they have produced no spiritual fruit. That means they've, they've remained connected to the body of Christ for a time. They, they may even verbally profess faith and repentance, but when it comes to their character, when it comes to their heart, there's never been a true heart change. In fact, the production of this worthless fruit indicates that their response is not simply neutral. It's not just that they haven't produced good fruit, the text doesn't say that this field received the rain and remained a dirt field. What it says is this field received the rain and produced actively thorns and thistles. This is a good reminder that there is no neutral response when it comes to a person's response to Christ. In the case of the genuine Christian, the benefits that God provides in the life of the church cause a believer to flourish. But in the case of an unbeliever, the experiences of the teaching of God and the benefits of God brought by the Spirit to the church only serve to further harden that person's heart. And this hardness of heart cannot be contained or covered with a smile indefinitely. At some point, that hardness of heart will evidence itself not just in neutrality towards Christ, but in the production of bad fruit, of thorns and of thistles. And so in the end, the true condition of the soil becomes evident and undeniable. The heart responds to the spiritual nourishment of God by either producing good 
spiritual fruit or the bad fruit that comes from a hardened heart. So in context here, the thorns and thistles clearly refer to the wicked heart and response of the apostate. The apostate, after having received such gracious benefits in the life of the church, denies the faith, and not just denies the faith, but goes on to join himself with those who crucified and shamed Christ. Remember verse 6, and then have fallen away. For those who've done all these things or had all these things and fallen away, it's impossible to renew them again to repentance. Why? Since they again crucified to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. These are the thorns and the thistles that show themselves in the field of the apostate. This rejection and hatred for Christ who has never been anything but good to them. Once that fruit is made evident, God confirms the true nature of the soil with either his affirmation or his condemnation. That brings us to explanation number three, the blessing and the curse. What are these, what is this blessing and what is this curse? Well, in context, the divine blessing that comes to the field that produces good fruit must refer to eternal salvation. We know that as we compare it to what's said of the result of the condemnation of the second field because they're intended to be exact opposites. The second field, referring to being cursed and burned, is an obvious reference to eternal punishment. This is condemnation. This is, this is hell. And Hebrews uses this idea of burning in other places. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26 to 27 For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment. And notice how he describes that judgment. And the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. And so the blessing and the burning refer to the eternal destiny of these two individuals, either the blessing of eternal salvation that comes to those who bear good fruit or eternal damnation in the fires of hell to those who produce wicked and evil fruit. It's a sobering reality. But before we move forward, I need to make sure we understand something very, very clearly. The blessing of salvation here is not earned by the fruit that's produced. It's really important to understand that. The blessing of salvation is given because the good fruit gives undeniable evidence of the true nature of the soil. Think of it this way. An apple tree does not become an apple tree once it produces apples. It produces apples because... It's an apple tree. The the order of events is very important here. Remember, there's a crucial distinction. We're looking at the nature of the soil, and we see the nature of the soil by the fruit that's produced. And we have to get that order right, because otherwise we come away with a works-based gospel, saying all you've got to do is produce these fruits, and you're in. That's not what the Bible is saying. The Bible says the heart of a person is made new. It is regenerated by, the, by God, the power of the Holy Spirit through the gospel. And that new heart then begins to produce good fruit. That fruit is the evidence of what's happened in the heart. That is the point that's being made. True salvation has come to the one who is good soil, who's been redeemed by God. And damnation comes to the one who has not 
and yet they are without excuse because the rain fell on both fields. Understand, this is the consistent witness of Scripture. I'm going to read to you a few different passages. Hang on for the ride, but look at how this is affirmed over and over again. John 15, verses 4 to 6. Abide in me and I in you, this is Jesus speaking, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away as a branch and dries up and they gather them and cast them into the fire and they are burned. How about Matthew chapter 7? Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Now think about this. This is, this is, this is an example of what we're talking about. Here's a person who actually is a wolf, but who puts on the clothing of a sheep so that he can blend in for a time with the sheep. How, do, how are we ever going to know that this is a wolf and not a sheep? Verse 16, you will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? So every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Notice the theme here of of the, the punishment for bearing bad fruit. So then you will know them by their fruits. Listen to this, verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Now just think about that. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord. That is not everyone who identifies me as Lord, that they're verbally confessing me as Lord. Not everyone who does that will go to heaven, he says. Why not? And he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Listen to this, verse 22. Many will say to me, Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Again, gifts versus character. Didn't we do all these things? I will say to them, verse 23, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. What about the parable of the soils? Jesus' parable in Luke 8 says, When a large crowd was coming together and those from the various cities were journeying to him, he spoke by way of a parable. The sower went out to sow his seed, and as he sowed, some fell beside the road, and it was trampled underfoot, and the birds of the air ate it up. Others, other seed fell on the rocky soil, and as soon as it grew up, it withered away because it had no moisture. Or other seed fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up with it and choked it out. Other seed fell into the good soil. Notice that. Into the good soil and grew up and produced a crop a hundred times as great. As he said these things, he would call out, He who has ears, let him hear. Verse 9, his disciples began questioning him as to what this parable meant. And he said, To you it's been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God, but to the rest it is in parables, so that seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. Here's his explanation. Now the parable is this. The seed is the word of God. Those beside the road are those who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their heart 
so that they will not believe and be saved. Those on the rocky soil are those who, when they hear, receive the word with joy, and these have no firm root. They believe for a while, and in time of temptation fall away. The seed which fell among the thorns, these are the ones who have heard, and as they go on their way, they're choked with worries and riches and pleasures of this life and bring no fruit to maturity. But the seed in the good soil, these are the ones who have heard the word in an honest and good heart and hold it fast and bear fruit with perseverance. Now the scriptures are clear that there are those who connect themselves to Christ and the gospel and the church and even profess Jesus as Lord for a time, but who are not truly saved. And the evidence given consistently is the issue of fruit. You will know them by their fruit. And this parable of the the sower, parable of the soils, makes it clear that the issue here is the quality of the soil. The gospel fell into all these different kinds of soil, but only one of those soils produced a plant that produced good fruit. Now, in context, the author of Hebrews is calling these Christians to evidence the truth of their salvation by pressing on to maturity and revealing good fruit. And in verse 9, remember, he's going to go on to say, and that's exactly what I expect of you. I expect good things, things that accompany salvation. I'm not expecting you all to be apostates who walk away from the faith. But I am warning you. I am warning you that if you stay in this state of lethargy, there may come a time where the truth of your heart is revealed, and it may be that some of you are truly not in Christ. And that will evidence itself by the fact that you will ultimately bear bad fruit. Understand, this is intended to be a wake-up call for us this morning. This is a call for us to do what Paul tells us to do in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, when he says, test yourselves, examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. And it's important for us to spend these last remaining minutes together doing exactly that. Let's let this illustration have its effect in us. There's something here for unbelievers and there's something here for believers All of us must, first of all, examine your fruit. Examine your fruit. As you consider your spiritual life, I want you to think about this. As you personally think about your spiritual life, is there any evidence of spiritual growth and sanctification in your life? Is there any evidence that you are growing to be more and more like Jesus Christ in your character? Love, selflessness, self-control, patience, kindness, gentleness, purity. Listen, is there any discernible difference in your life now than the life you lived before you say you came to know Christ? Is your life still riddled with the exact same sins in the exact same way without any progress towards Christ-likeness? Has there been any increase in your faith in Christ? Any increase in your love for Christ? Is there any increase in your zeal for the name of Christ? Is there any increase in your sensitivity to sin and your motivation to obey Christ? Do you have an increasing love for God's people? Do you love the bride of Christ? Since you claim to have come to know Christ, is there any increase in your desire to share the gospel of Christ? with other people, that others might repent of their sins and put their faith in Christ? 
In short, are you a different person in your character by coming to know the Lord Jesus Christ? Has there been a transformation from the inside? The reason that this matters, the reason that this is so significant is because the Bible explains that salvation is not primarily a work of man. It is a work of God. If you're a true Christian today, it's because God has brought about a transforming work within your heart. It is God who makes us fertile soil. Jesus described it this way. John 3, 3, Jesus answered and said to him, to Nicodemus, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Just as you didn't make yourself be born the first time, you can't make yourself be born the second time. God must do a work within you. You must be born again, transformed by the work of the Holy Spirit through the gospel. Paul describes it this way, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. What that means is that when God saves you, God miraculously brings about a spiritual transformation within you from the inside. The Bible calls it regeneration. You are given spiritual life. And that spiritual life causes you then to to have faith and repentance, which are also gifts of God. And you respond to the gospel. But not just responding to the gospel, you run towards Christ, desiring to follow him now and not yourself. You're a new creature with a new nature who believes God, loves God, and desires to follow God and be made like Christ. It is this regeneration, this being made new in Christ that causes us to have fertile soil in our hearts that grows good fruit as God waters us with the rain of the word and and, and fellowship of his people and and all of the the gifts that he's given to us to, to grow us in sanctification. Understand that when you come to know Christ and when you are made new, it doesn't mean that you become perfect, that you no longer have a battle with sin. What happens is a battle with sin begins on that day in which you now see your sin entirely different and you go to war with your sin. And you still struggle and you still fall down and scrape your knee, but you get up and you repent and you follow after Christ because he's made you new and the things you used to love now are distasteful to you. It makes you sick and sad when you do those things. Things And so you turn and you run away from them to Christ. This is a good place for us just to stop and ask. Have you personally come to know the Lord Jesus Christ? When you look at your spiritual tree, is there good fruit? Does your tree look like the character of Christ? If the answer is no, while that's bad news, there's also some good news. And the good news is you're here. And if you will come to a place today in which you understand that you're a sinner and that your sin makes you guilty before God and there's nothing that you can do to transform or change yourself or make yourself right with God, but all you can do is realize that Jesus Christ is the answer, that God sent his son to live a perfect life, to die on the cross for your sins and to rise again in victory over sin and death on the third day. And the Bible says that if you will repent of your sins, if you'll humble yourself, confessing yourself to be a sinner, desiring to turn from that and follow Christ, putting your faith in Jesus Christ alone as your only hope of salvation, then you will be saved. It is through the preaching of that message that the Holy Spirit goes and converts and regenerates and makes new. And he can do that in your heart today. If the Holy Spirit is at work in you this morning, 
Don't resist that. Humble yourself and repent and put your faith in Christ. But if you look at your life and you look at your spiritual tree and you recognize that while there's always room to grow, there is good spiritual fruit on that tree by God's grace, there's now a second application for those of us in Christ. And it's this, kill remaining thorns. Kill remaining thorns. Everything that I said earlier is true. When you come to Christ, you receive a new nature and and good fruit begins to, to grow in the soil of your new heart. But this process of spiritual growth is gradual and lifelong. It will not be until Christ brings us home that we will have perfectly green grass or perfectly good fruit growing on our tree when he makes us completely new and in glory in which we are actually perfectly like Christ in our character. And so it is that we as Christians have to be encouraged and motivated by this text to not only be encouraged by our good fruit, but look for the thorns that remain and seek to weed them out. Think of it this way. As you drive through your neighborhood, you can tell just with a quick glance which of your neighbors applies weed killer and fertilizer and which ones don't. How do you know? I mean, you can go 50 miles an hour down your street and still tell easily which yard does and which yard doesn't. Why? Because of the ratio of weeds to grass, right? It becomes painstakingly obvious. And yet, if you've ever tried to take a yard that has become overgrown and bring it back, you understand that that is not an instantaneous process. It's going to take time to bring that yard under control with much fertilizer and much weed killer and things that probably shouldn't go into the ground, but it does kill weeds. But even still, year two, year three, year four, year five of maintaining that yard, it's going to get better, the grass is going to get greener, the weeds are going to be fewer, but still you're going to have to walk over that yard and pull weeds on occasion, and things are going to grow. Grasses that you never intended to grow are going to be there, and you're going to be in a constant battle in this fallen world trying to kill those weeds. It's similar in the Christian life. Yes, you are made new, you are redeemed. There's, there's this green grass that begins to grow, but as you walk across that grass, you say, oh, there's a weed, and there's a weed, and man, I thought I'd killed that, but I killed it over here, but it popped up over here, and that's the Christian life. That's sanctification. Where are the weeds in your spiritual life? Where are the thorns? Let me give you an easy assignment that that I did myself in trying to apply this text that I think may help identify some of those weeds and thorns. I want you to go back to Galatians 5 and the fruit of the Spirit And I just want you to think through each one on its own. Just meditate on each one and ask God by his grace to show you where in your life you need to grow in that particular fruit of the spirit. And I promise you some weeds and thorns will begin to show their ugly head, but God in his grace will then give you the strength to turn from those things and to begin to grow. But lastly, not only do we need to kill the thorns that remain on the negative side, but finally we need to maximize fruit, maximize your fruit. Remember, this all ties back to that overarching idea to press on to maturity. Using our illustration of of the yard, we need to not only put down the chemicals that will kill the weeds, but we need to put down the fertilizer that will promote the growth of good grass, good fruit. Have you grown lazy or complacent in your pursuit of Christ? 
How often do you open the word and study the word of God for yourself? How often do you hide the word of God in your heart through memory and meditate? Are you like the psalmist that says, I can't wait for the night watches so that I can turn my thoughts to you? Are you like the psalmist in Psalm 19 that says the judgments of God are like, they're like sweeter than honey. They're more valuable than gold. Is that how you think about the truth? Because that's the fertilizer of the spiritual life. Get into the word of God. Hide it in your heart that you may not sin against him. Do you run to God in prayer? How often are you coming before the Lord in in true, heartfelt, genuine, faith-filled prayer in God? Are you committed to fellowshipping with other saints in the body? Are you committed to serving in the body? When's the last time you shared the gospel with someone? These are the things that God has given to us to, to grow in the faith, to water and fertilize the good fruit. And so while we ought to be quick to pull a weed, we ought to be just as quick to fertilize that we might grow in Christ. Remember, the issue is not the rain. The rain falls often and frequently, but are you drinking it in and taking the benefit of the good gifts that God has given us to grow us into the image of his son? Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, these words ring true with us, and they are hard words at times, and yet so good, so true. Help us to accurately see ourselves. We admit we struggle with that. We want to give ourselves the benefit of the doubt so often. We, we want to immediately minimize conviction by looking at, at other areas that are going much better. God, help us not to do that. Help us to be serious in our heart evaluation. I pray for those this morning who are not in Christ. God, I pray that you would open their eyes to the truth of the gospel as only you can, that you would transform their hearts even now as I pray that they would see themselves as they truly are and that you would make them new by the gospel of Jesus Christ, causing them to run to him in faith and repentance. God, I pray for every believer in this room, for myself, that we would be serious about the things of God, that we would love the Lord Jesus Christ in increasing measure, that we would be serious about weeding out the thorns and weeds that remain in our life spiritually, and that we would fertilize for good growth through the means you've given. Give us an increasing desire for Christ, his word, his truth, his people, until you bring us home. It's in your precious name we pray. Amen.